Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Chase. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for October 5th, 2022. Uh, if you're looking for the DC books, I'll remind you, as always, that those are on our DC Spotlight that comes out every Tuesday. And be warned, there are plenty of spoilers. Rocky from Comic Boom and I go into the characterization, plot points, storylines, all that kind of stuff. So if you're looking for the DC books, go check out yesterday's episode. That being said, it was a little bit of a down week from DC. Uh, Gotham City Year One from Tom King and Phil Hester was a, a pretty good read. The regular Batman title from Zadarsky, which was a lot of fun, but definitely had some plot holes and some uh, stuff that just didn't make sense. But it was still really, really enjoyable. Those were the highlights. The rest of the stuff really was kind of underwhelming, to be honest. But anyway, if you want the details, as I said, go listen to the episode from yesterday. Uh, but this is the New Comics Wednesday episode, which is always uh, spoiler-free for the most part. I'll talk about some of the books I've had a chance to read already that are coming out today. I think it's 15 or 16 books I'm going to cover really quickly. I know New York Comic Con for a lot of people this week. So if you're on the subway or heading into the city to uh, go to the show, have a great con. It, uh, I planned on being there, but getting COVID finally uh, from... San Diego Comic-Con, after I managed to dodge it for two and a half years, was uh, just, it, it knocked me on my butt, and I just couldn't take the risk with everything that's going on with the day job whatnot. So, hope everybody that heads out to New York Comic-Con has a, a good show, has a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully none of you guys get sick. So, um, next year, I should be there. So, anyway, if you are joining me, um, I really appreciate the support and glad to give you something to listen to while you're heading into the city on the subway or what have you. So let's go ahead and kick it off. First book I'm going to talk about is Dark Ride number one from writer creator Joshua Williamson. The art is by co-creator Andre Brezin. Adriana Lucas handles the colors, Pat Barroso on letters. This is a horror comic, but it's not a horror comic in the way that you might expect. And I, I'm not the biggest horror guy. I wasn't a horror guy at all until maybe six, seven years ago when I started reading Aftershock stuff and it, um, it was so much better than I expected. And it kind of pulled me in black eyed kids. was probably the first horror book I read where I was really invested. Uh, and I've read a lot more horror since then. That being said, so much of it these days feels either tongue in cheek or it feels super dark. And while still good, this is really the first horror book I've read in a long time where I, I I was immediately drawn in. Williamson does an incredible job of balancing a, a lightness, um, kind of uh, like a welcome. Uh, it really pulls you in. You feel, for lack of a better word, safe. Um, you know, it, it doesn't feel like it's trying to be scary for the sake of being scary. It's just a good solid story and then yeah we meet some interesting characters and as it goes on you start to see some disturbing images you start to see that there's more to the story than than meets the eye and you kind of get the sense of foreboding which i think is what a lot of the best horror stories do so like i said there's little hints of trauma little hints of 
I don't want to say evil, but, you know, bad things people have done in the past. And again, I just thought it was a really great balance between feeling welcoming and feeling like there are bad things to come on the horizon. So uh, again, I really highly recommended. It. it was so much fun. It's basically the story of this family. It seems to be the story of this family that founded an amusement park called Devil Land. So think about like Disneyland for horror fans. And it's built up into this big empire now. And, you know, what's the modern state of of the theme park? What's the modern state of the family? We meet plenty of employees of the uh, amusement park in this first issue. Seems to be where the majority of the story is going to take place. Maybe that's part of the welcome feel of it, right? This Disneyland welcoming you in, become part of our world. Uh, but unfortunately, that world is filled with horror and terror and, and terrible things. So um, Dark Ride number one, really, really great read. Uh, I was really impressed with it. And uh, hopefully we're going to have Joshua on to talk about it sometime in the near future. So definitely pick it up. It is a book you need to read this week. Uh, up next, another image book. It's called Three Keys. It's from writer-artist David Messina. Uh, dialogue assist by Scotty Tipton. Colors by David Messina and Alessandro Alekakis. And letters by Sean Lee. So this is not the most original um, idea in the world. There are some sort of texts, art pieces uh, in the beginning that kind of explains the world. There is a key, thus the name Three Keys. It was a big giant broadsword at one point. It was broken into three pieces, and now these pieces need to be reunited by descendants of a magical world. Um, and there are also um, anthropomorphic cats, which are like, when I say cat, you know, think of like a a tiger, like a tiger man, if you will, panther man, lion man, that kind of thing. So uh, it's kind of hard to know from the first issue what this is going to be. It does seem like it's one of those stories where you're mixing the the fantastical and the magical world with the real world it's set in New York. Uh, and we see some homages to some familiar places. Um it, the art by David Messina is gorgeous. There are times where the writing feels a little, I don't want to say sexist, but it, this definitely feels like, I, I don't know. I, there was just, a, there was one character basically um, who said some things that some people could find offensive. I'll put it that way. But the women are beautiful uh, as drawn by David Messina and it seems like you know, this is definitely for more of an adult crowd uh, because it seems like sex and sexual innuendo is going to be part of the story. So just be warned of that. Whether or not I'm going to like it, I don't know. The art really makes up for um, some of the shortcomings in uh, the pacing and the narrative, things that aren't clear. But this is only the first issue. So I'm going to give it another issue or two to see if it starts to make a little more sense. And, you know, I've talked a lot about how hard first issues are to do. Um, so this, this is promising. And again, that art really, really pulls you in. Um, might be, might be the best looking book this week in terms of uh, 
of visuals. So jury's still out on this one. Pick it up, thumb through it. If you think it's for you, uh, go ahead and give it a try. Uh, all right. Up next, first Marvel book I'm going to talk about this week. It's uh, Axe, Avengers X-Men Eternals, Star Fox. It's from writer Kieran Gillen. Uh, Danielle DiNiculo is the artist. Frank Williams on colors. Joe Sabino on letters. If you're not familiar with who Star Fox is, um, this is kind of a good a good issue to read um, because it tells you who he is now. There are hints to who he's been in the past. Uh, you know, obviously his, his history with his brother Thanos, his parents are mentioned here. He narrates the story himself. So you get a lot of insight into who he is. So again, it's a real good way to get to know the character as he is now. I know he's supposed to be coming up in the, the MCU. So maybe you're curious about him. Another thing that it did do very well because of who Star Fox is now, who Eros is now. And with Eros making references to past events in his life, it makes you, or it made me anyway, not that I've read every Eros appearance, but it made me want to. It made me want to go back and um, and really take a journey with this guy because he's been through a lot. You know, go. I, I think the most recent Eros stuff I've read is probably his earliest appearances in um, in the Captain Marvel when uh, Jim Starlin uh, first debuted him. So, um, you know, he was a member of the Avengers for a long time, and I know a lot of his early appearances now are super hot again because he's going to appear in the MCU. And I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I find that kind of comic book speculation. It's like he's gonna he's gonna show up. And he's going to be an okay character. And then the prices on all that stuff is just going to, you know, drop through the floor. So I really don't understand just like Moon Knight stuff, right? Before the Moon Knight series came out. I mean, I haven't seen it, but from everything I've heard, it was really well received and people loved it. And then I guess there's not going to be a second season. And so now all that Moon Knight stuff is like half of what it costs. So I imagine it's going to be the same thing with, with Star Fox. It's all about the, um, it's all about the anticipation, right? Once once he actually shows up and people go, oh, that's all there is to him. You know, he's a comic book character. You know, what are you going to do? But anyway, I'm totally getting off tangent. This is a good issue. Uh, off on a tangent, I should say, off topic. Uh, but this is a good issue. Um, I wasn't the biggest fan of the art style from Dinaculo. Um, I've liked his art on things I've seen him do in the past, especially on Seven Secrets of Tom Taylor. But here it... It's not that the art is bad by any stretch of the imagination. It just feels so much different in style than a lot of the other acts issues. So it just feels kind of out of place here. And I'm not the biggest fan of this current look for Eros where he looks um, so much different than he looked in the past. Um, kind of liked his, his kind of classic look better um, rather than him wearing this this cape all the time. And I, I don't know, he looks more feminine than he used to. And I, I just, I prefer the old version of him. So anyway, it was still a good issue. As I said, gives a lot of insight into who Eros is. And it did make me want to read more Star Fox stuff. And this whole uh, Axe series has made me want to get caught up on not just X-Men stuff, which I wanted to get caught up on for a long time. But also, to a lesser extent, the uh, Eternals, and, he, and a slightly lesser extent with the Avengers. I mean, I am reading Avengers now, but when Jason Aaron first started off, I, I read his first issue. I just didn't like it, and I, I, you know, against my own advice, 
didn't read more than the first issue, which I should have. Um, but I've heard good things and I, I dipped in here and there on his Avengers run and, and I enjoyed what I read. So I feel like I need to go back and read the whole Jason Aaron run of Avengers, but I definitely want to read the Karen Gillen uh, eternal stuff, which I did enjoy, but it's, you have to invest some time in that. And then obviously the X-Men stuff was what Hickman was doing. You know, I read Dawn of X and powers of X and I just, uh, or I should say house of X and powers of 10, I think is the way it was. And then I started reading Dawn of X and I just fell off. So I need to get caught up. But anyway, um, if you're caught up on all this stuff, I imagine this judgment day event is really, really good. Um, you guys are probably getting a lot out of it because, uh, it's so much different. I, I've talked about that on, on past new comic Wednesday episodes, about how Kieran Gillen is doing a fantastic job of using the real estate uh, in a very efficient way, uh, the real estate in terms of how many pages he has to tell the story. So uh, he's doing a fantastic job, uh, which leads me to my next issue, which is uh, Axe X-Men, Avengers X-Men, Eternals, X-Men, One-Shot, also by writer Kieran Gillen. He's writing so many of these too, man. The guy's really a machine. Uh, the art in this one is by Francesco uh, Mobley, letters by Clayton Cowles, colors by Frank Martin. This art is much more kind of in line with what we've seen from the other um, different one-shots and main story. So it definitely feels like it fits in. I'm not familiar with Frank Mobley, but uh, this art is really fantastic. He uses a very fine line weight, which really has the uh, action feeling very dynamic. Uh, and even though this is um, Axe X-Men, this is really a Jean Grey story. So it focuses on Jean Grey, Iron Man, um, the Eternals that are in the um, Celestial that they created, Progenitor, trying to get to the self-destruct and activate it. And while they're in the midst of that, they're kind of fighting the self-defense mechanisms of the, this progenitor kind of its antibodies if you will because they certainly are foreign objects in this giant god machine and uh, gene is the most powerful of any of them in there and she's confronted not only by the antibodies but the progenitor itself and really forced once again to face her past to face the decisions she's she has made the choices she's made the actions she's taken whether as Jean Grey or Phoenix. And much like I was just saying with the previous issue, making me want to read more about Star Fox, this reminded me what a powerful character Jean Grey is, what a, you know, a powerful hero she is, but also a powerful character in terms of the stories that that character has been used to tell have a lot of weight to them, right? Whether or not it's, um, her as dark Phoenix destroying planets and killing millions or her redemption or her, her dying, her coming back to life, her relationship with Scott, her relationship with Wolverine. Like she has been such a big part of the Marvel universe. She's a fascinating character. And, you know, this issue by Karen Gillan made me want to go and read all the Jean Grey stuff. So uh, it's hard to overstate what a great job Gillen is doing on this current event. I got to think that Marvel is loving what they're getting out of him um, because if he, it feels like I mean, I've been reading comics for a long time and I've read a lot of Jean Grey stuff, certainly not all of it, but it feels like what Gillen is able to do 
in pulling people in to these characters and hooking them. Like if there's newer readers that haven't read that Jean Grey stuff, like I can just imagine that, Hey, I want to go get a Marvel unlimited subscription so I can go back and read more Jean Grey, or I'm going to go buy some X-Men trades. Cause I want to read more Jean Grey. I want to have that Jean Grey first appearance. I want to follow Jean and what she's done throughout her Marvel career, if you will. Um, so yeah, just, just really impressed. Just an, another great issue focusing on Jean and, I won't spoil it, but uh, you do find out whether the progenitor gives her a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down, as it were. So, uh, all right. Up next, another Marvel book, Captain America, Sentinel of Liberty. We're up to issue number five. This is from writers Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Gorgeous art by Carmen Quinero, as there have has been throughout the series. Letters by Joe Caramagna, colors by Nolan Woodard. Uh, we saw at the end of last issue that Cap and Bucky uh, had reunited and compared their notes on the circle, this um, secret cabal that has been ruling the world. Uh, and we find out just how long they've been ruling the world in this issue. And, and kind of the um, the shroud is kind of removed. You know, they learn and we learn along with them um, what this cabal is about, what their uh, motivations are, how long they've been. Um, pulling the strings of the world as it were. And it leads to um, a confrontation with a member of the circle and Cap and Bucky that probably doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. And then as it starts to come back around and you start to think, okay, I know how this is going to go. Then it gets flipped on its head again. So this issue really was all action from start to finish. I can't really talk much more <laughs> than I've already said about it because when an issue is as paced as tightly uh, and moves as quickly as this one does with all the all out action, one story beat after another, there's not really much more I can say without giving something away. Uh, what I will say is that once again, uh, Lansing and Kelly show what a good handle they have on who Captain America is who Steve Rogers is. And it's kind of funny. Like I, I have criticized in the past, the, the MCU Iron Man never seems to have his helmet on Captain America never seems to have his, um, you know, mask on. They're always taking it off. And, and I understand why when you're uh, a star like Chris Evans or uh, Robert Downey Jr. You're paid all these millions of dollars to make this movie. You have a, a big fan base you don't want to be you, the, the studio itself, Marvel, Disney, whatever. They don't want these stars to be covering their faces because that's part of why people go to see the movie, right? I'm going, I want to go see Robert Downey Jr. I want to go see Chris Evans. I want to go see whomever, right? So that's the reason they're always finding an excuse to take it off. What's interesting is in, in this run so far, Lansing and Kelly have uh, had Steve take off his mask so many times. And, and I talked to them about it at San Diego Comic-Con um, because I noticed in the first couple of issues, we were getting a lot of Steve and it, it it's kind of like with Bruce Wayne and Batman. Um, he's be Batman's become so popular. All we ever get is Batman and Bruce Wayne is forgotten. And that didn't used to be the, the way that it was. And it's the same way with Captain America. It's he's always Captain America. We don't get Steve like, we used to, especially, I'm going to go, I keep going back to that, that favorite era of Cap for me from about 270, I think when DeMatteis was writing it up to about 350-ish or so, 360, um, which covers the Mark Grunewald era um, in its entirety. And then after 
he, he left the book. Um, and it was just so great. And it was a lot of Steve. You got a lot of Steve, especially in like the two seventies when Steve was working, I think as a, in advertising and he was going out with Bernie Rosenthal and he, he had a, somebody who lived in his building, neighbor Arnie, who was one of the first homosexual characters in comics. Um, but you saw a lot of Steve. Um, and I mentioned that to Jackson and Colin and they were like, yeah, you know, it's kind of the era that we, we really enjoyed about Cap as well. So it's, it's not a, it's not an accident that we're getting a lot of Steve here, but it, it's reminding me as a longtime Cap fan and should be apparent to, to even new readers that Captain America and Steve Rogers, they're synonymous, right? It's part of the reason I'm not a big fan of, of Sam Wilson as Captain America, because to me, Cap is Steve and Steve is Cap. You can't separate the two. Um, you know, I mentioned Batman earlier when I was talking about being, seeing that alter ego show up in the pages of the comic. They're, they're, that's one of the fundamental differences, right? Like, so maybe it's not the best comparison to make because when you're talking about Bruce Wayne and Batman, they are two very different people. So you can't think of them as, as one and the same. You know, when, when he takes the mask off, and becomes Bruce Wayne. That is an act. That is a persona, right? It's a secret identity, um, just like Clark and Superman. You know, very distinct personalities, very distinct characters. But when you're talking about Cap, whether he's Steve Rogers or he's Captain America, he's the same guy. Uh, and that's what we're being reminded of here. So, again, fantastic issues, some twists and turns. I love what we're getting from this uh, Sentinel of Liberty story how much it, it ties into Steve Rogers past um, his legacy. Uh, you know, I, I talked about how much this reminds me of like the secret empire era of cap, with this shadowy cabal and then to bring in Bucky and the relationship between Steve and Bucky and bringing this, this throughput, this, this thread, like these writers have tied it all together. Um, they've made it all make sense. Um, and it's just super interesting. And with this Carmen Canero art, um, yeah, and that's a must read. One of the best books at Marvel right now without qu without question. I mean, we've lost a lot of good books, right? Like we had Black Widow get canceled. We had Spider-Woman get canceled. Luckily, Captain Marvel's still going on, but this is now one of the top three books at Marvel. Um, so you should be reading it. Uh, all right, let's move on. Next book I'm going to talk about is Junkyard Joe. It's from Image Comics, the Mad Ghost uh, imprint, I guess you'd say, of Jeff Johns. He's the co-creator and writer of this, along with artist Gary Frank. Brad Anderson does the colors, Rob Lee on letters. And it's basically the story, the kind of the first appearance, if you will, um, of Junkyard Joe, 1972. Now, it's technically not the first appearance. He did show up in a Geiger I think in the 80 page Geiger giant, but in terms of his sort of origin story, I mean, we don't learn exactly how it was built, but we see junkyard Joe, who's basically a robotic U S army soldier. We see him when he was first deployed in Vietnam. Um, we see him join his platoon. We learn what his purpose is. We don't necessarily learn how he was built, um, but it, it's a powerful story. It's not an easy story to read, in terms of it's a it is a Vietnam War story, and that was a, a horrible war. I mean, all wars are horrible, but Vietnam was a especially bad 
maybe because we lost, you know, maybe because there's, there's so much trauma and there were so many atrocities. Uh, and again, there's always atrocities with war. Um, but that, that just, I mean, for Americans, it, Vietnam just has such a terrible connotation as opposed to something like World War II, which yes, horrible concentration camps and whatever, but we, but we won and we feel like we vanquished evil. And I think that's part of the reason that it has more of a positive connotation with that war as opposed to Vietnam again, which, you know, just, and it wasn't just the, the war itself. It was kind of the time period. Uh, the seventies were such a time of, of upheaval, civil unrest, you know, coming out of the sixties, things still hadn't been set, settled necessarily, even though supposedly, um, you know, the civil rights movement had won so many victories in the sixties and things were supposed to be much more equal in the seventies. That wasn't the actual reality of, of the world. And then you have the backdrop of this war against it. And it was just, it was a very hard time for, uh, for this country, for America. So um, maybe part of the reason that uh, the eighties were kind of an overcompensation for that uh, in a lot of ways with uh, a decade of decadence, if you will, um, but anyway, uh, this is a good book. This is a great book. Uh, and I love the fact that Mad Ghost Studios, Jeff Johns, the other creators involved are donating a, a lot of the uh, proceeds from this book. So there's five different covers and every one of them has a black and white version and all the proceeds from the black and white, including an extra $2 for each of the black and white editions sold is being donated to a couple of organizations that help veterans, one for uh, homeless veterans and um, and the second one for, uh, let me look it up here, make sure I get it right. Uh, the second one is the um, CEO, of, uh, sorry, Veterans Aid is the second one um, who also help out veterans in need. So you purchase one of the black and whites, you're going to get... Um, you're going to be part of something that that's helping out people who have um, served this country. Uh, and then also in the back, there's some essays from the creators about people in their own families who have served and have um, made the sacrifice to, um, to serve in the military for our country. And uh, Jeff Johns has a little thing in his uh, write up in the back that says, um, if you'd like to share, or you'd like to thank your friends or family for their service, send us the letters. Uh, with their name and service information, a short message, and they're going to try to print those in a, in a future issue. So this was a great book. I can't wait to see where it goes from here because um, it's really interesting and it's not at all what I expected. You know, you, you hear, okay, it's, it's um, based on his first appearance in uh, that 80 page giant, you know, he's junkyard Joe, he's a robotic soldier and you think it's going to be him just, you know, becoming part of this platoon and, you know, every, everything's going to be, you know, victorious and yay America and that, that kind of thing. And it's not that it's a much more human story, especially considering how inhuman this guy is, right? He's a robot. He shouldn't have feelings or opinions or, or any of that, right? He's going to follow his programming. This story is so much more than that. This is a very human story and uh, it wasn't at all what I expected. And it, um, like, I, I kind of expected a fun robotic soldier story, you know? Um, 
with him doing these really cool things and, you know, defeating the enemy and being so advanced and like this big kind of popcorn, uh, big summer blockbuster movie, action movie kind of thing. And that, again, that's just not what this is. It's something so different, so much more intimate, so much more emotional. And uh, I was just, I was really impressed. This is Jeff Johns at his best. Uh, Really, really great job. So do recommend that. Uh, All right. Up next, real quickly from Image, Golden Rage, number three. This is from writer Chrissy Williams. The art is by Lauren Knight. Colors by Sophie Dodgson. Flats by Shane Hana Koo. And letters and design by Becca Carey. I almost felt like I missed an issue with this. Um, I don't know. I know I read the first, second, and second issues, but this one, it moves really, really fast. But I feel like I'm missing parts of the plot. So I don't know. Maybe that's on me and I need to go back and reread. I'm not sure I'm going to continue with this. The premise is sort of interesting in a societal commentary, social commentary kind of way. This island that these women are taken to, it's an island for women that have reached menopause. And so that's where the social commentary comes in, right? Like this idea that, okay, if a woman can no longer reproduce, no longer give birth, she's garbage, right? She's waste. She should, she should be thrown away. So once a woman hits menopause, they, 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 what's the word? Um, exile them. They exile them to this Island out in the middle of nowhere where they struggle for survival, fight amongst themselves, different factions. Like, I mean, that's harsh. It is really harsh. Um, so I'm not sure what the creators are trying to say, but in a way it's, I don't want to say it's offensive um, because it, in a way it's an interesting concept for a story, but it is sort of depressing uh, in a lot of ways. So with that backdrop, I don't know. It's not really, it's not necessarily resonating for me. Plus the other thing is I'm, I'm not a woman. So maybe if I was a woman um, and it, I would have a different perspective on it. I don't know. I'm not trying to belittle or demean it because again, it is an interesting concept and there are, we see in this issue for the first time, some interesting dynamics between the women, not that there haven't been um, drama and tension with the uh, the interpersonal relationship so far, but in this issue, some familial stuff comes in as well that makes for interesting thought, but I don't necessarily have a way to relate to that since I'm not a woman. And again, I mean, I can try to, and I can see similarities, but I just, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not a woman, so am I reading too much into it? Am I not? Am I, do I have the right perspective? You know, who can say? Um, I do I do wish that I had a female co-host that could read this and give me her insights on it because I'm, I would be curious to see. I probably need to go and seek out some reviews of this by um, some female comic um, journalists and uh, reviewers and commentators and, and see what their perspective on it is because I, I don't know. I feel like there's something that's just not pulling me in. So I don't know. Maybe I'll read the next issue and, and see where, because I, the other part is I still don't really know where it's going. 
um, there is a cliffhanger ending in this one, um, which was interesting, but I don't know that I'm invested enough to even come back to find out the answer to why that happened, but I don't know. I guess we'll see. Uh, all right. Up next, going back to Marvel, we're up to issue number nine of Hulk. This is from writer Donnie Cates with art by Ryan Otley. Cliff Rathburn does the inks. Marte Garcia and Matt Hollingsworth on colors. Corey Petit on letters. This is called Hulk Planet. So sort of typical of, of Cates to play uh, nostalgia, to play a little word game with the title. We all know Planet Hulk. <laughs> Very famous Hulk story and era of the title uh, from Greg Pak. And now we're on Hulk planet. So really not much that happens in this issue. We get a, a scene early with Bruce back on starship Hulk back in charge. And then we see the Hulk, you know, again, starship Hulk traveling through this unknown part of the Marvel universe, um, happen upon a planet, make planet fall, if you will, and then starts to learn uh, about what that planet is. And that's it. That's the whole issue. So it really didn't feel like much <laughs> this issue. And, you know, it's like, really, that's it. Um, I don't know. There just wasn't much to it. I was very underwhelmed by this as I've been underwhelmed by this entire Hulk series so far. And maybe I'm being overly critical. Um, Anybody who's listened to the podcast for a long time knows when I was reviewing the Immortal Hulk stuff toward the end, I was really ready for it to be over. It felt like it went on too long. It felt like it was getting uh, pretentious and preachy, and I was just ready for a return to a more superheroic Hulk. And then I find out we're getting Donny Cates and, and Ryan Otley. And not that they haven't had uh, some interesting things here or there, um, but for the most part, I've been underwhelmed. This is just, it's not what I wanted. Not that Marvel needs to give me exactly what I want. Sometimes by not giving readers what they think they want, you can end up um, really capturing lightning in a bottle. But, you know, we went from that first arc, which was sort of interesting and introduced some new characters to the Thor banner war where we were told that we would finally, once and for all, find out who was stronger, Hulk or Thor, which we did not which is annoying, which, I mean, it makes sense. Who's stronger? Who's going to win a fight between Thor and Hulk? I'll tell you exactly who's going to win the fight which, uh, every time. Whoever that writer wants to win the fight is because who's, who's going to win. Whoever they need to win the fight is who's going to win. It's totally up to the, the writer. They can manipulate events to make whoever win the fight. So there's no real answer, and there ever will be a real answer, which is fine. I just thought that it was a little disingenuous of Kate's to say that we were finally going to find out. I knew we wouldn't. Um, so again, I wasn't really surprised that we didn't, um, but you know, it is what it is, I guess. Anyway, I'm going to move on. Obviously this Hulk title is not resonating with me. Uh, and it feels like it's been, well over a year since they've been on Hulk and we've only got nine issues. That's the other thing. Like it doesn't feel like it's on a monthly schedule. Um, I could be wrong about that. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Uh, up next, Jane Foster and the mighty Thor part five of five from writer Torin Gronbeck. Art is by Michael Dowling. 
Colors by Jesus Arbatov and Eric Arsenega. Joe Sabina does the letters and production. This is the end of the story. It wraps it up neatly, if not um, happily, <laughs> I'll say. Um, this is everything you want from a Thor story and has been from the start. It's got mythical realms. It's got gods. It's got these super uber powerful characters. It's got Jane. It's got Thor showcases their relationship, especially at the end of the story. So if you're a Thor fan uh, and a regular reader of Thor, you definitely should pick this up. You're going to enjoy it. That being said, I'm not a regular reader of Thor and I typically don't read Thor. And this issue kind of did remind me why. It's impossible to tell a Thor story, especially one when he's the king of Asgard and his home base is Asgard. It's impossible to tell us an interesting story, interesting Thor story, where you don't reference all the other realms and the other gods and the other kind of events that have happened in Thor's past and, and that sort of thing. I'm not familiar with any of that stuff. So there were times where I felt a little lost, didn't understand references. And I just kind of had to power through. That's on me. And I, I think that Gronbeck did a fantastic job because there, I did get plenty out of this story and I did enjoy it. But I think to really get the most out of this five issue mini, you're going to need a, um, you're going to need a familiarity with Thor. Uh, the art by Dowling was, was fantastic. Um, really, really good. Um, I'd like to see more of his art. I, I thought that I had seen his art. I mean, the name definitely sounds familiar. I don't know where I've seen his art before, but I was really impressed with uh, with his line work. So I do recommend it for fans of Thor. Uh, if you're not a fan of Thor, this is not really a an arc to jump on, I wouldn't say. And I do wonder about the timing of it. Maybe they were trying to get some of that... Um, audience crossover audience because we did have thor love and thunder come out um while this was the monthly uh, series was coming out so maybe marvel just wanted a jane foster a title in the stands that had the the words jane foster and thor in the title and this does right jane foster and the mighty thor um but oh man i don't i don't know that this would be a um a good series to recommend to somebody who's only familiar with Thor and Jane Foster from the MCU, because again, there's so much to Thor and, and the realm that he's in. Um, and again, you're just going to get so much more out of it if you're, if you're familiar with Thor. So, uh, all right, up next, let's go back over to image. We have the dead lucky issue number three from writer, Melissa Flores, French Carla Mongo is the artist. Mattia Iacono is the colorist Becca carry on letters Wow, it's uh, it's hard to overstate how interesting this series has been. We had Melissa on to talk about it before it dropped. She talked a lot about trauma. She talked a lot about service. She talked a lot about veterans and people that have served. Just talked about Junkyard Joe, which really delves into that. This goes kind of the other way. It still talks about trauma and, and clearly what it means to be a soldier. And, and again, Melissa talked a lot about that when she came on the show. Um but this is all action. Um, we do see some of the trauma at the forefront of um, Bibby, the main character, the, the dead lucky. Um, 
we do see some of the the trauma, her PTSD coming through, but it's it's a little bit more in the background than it was in in um, in Junkyard Joe. So, um, and that's neither good nor bad. I'm not judging on that basis. It's a great comic because it's a lot of action, right? It's taking the idea of um, telling a story that where you can comment on something, you can explore something, you can reach people and relate to people that had that experience on a certain level. Um, but that can be sort of not necessarily in the background, but it can be kind of a, a thread that runs underneath this overt story. That's all action with a giant mech and superpowers and this idea of a fascist technology, technological company or technology company trying to gain control more and more control of a city under the guise of making it a better place, right? So we have the Moro, Moro Corporation, Moro Corporation that's trying to exert more and more control over the decisions and the day-to-day lives of people who live in San Francisco under the guise of, of making it a better place. And meanwhile, we have uh, Bibby and her friends fighting back against Moro and uh, you know using this mech the, uh, ghost and her powers to say no, we don't we don't want the moral corporation in here making decisions for us. So again, tons of action, really great dialogue, and every once in a while you get those moments, those um, those beats where the PTSD, the trauma, the things that Bibby have been through boil up to the surface, and it feels very human and very real. Um, and then that relatability that that we have. Uh, I mean, if you're somebody who's gone through things like Bibby and served and been in combat zones, you're probably going to relate to her. If, if you're not and you're like me, then you're going to relate to the characters in the story that are trying to relate to Bibby. And it's a fantastic job. It's a fantastic way to present it because those characters that are trying to relate to Bibby are saying the things that, that we ourselves would say um, if we have or have said if we have someone in our life who's gone through things like Bibby has. So it, it's, it's fantastic that Melissa has both those perspectives in there. And again, it brings a realism to the, to the book on that level. And then, like I said, on the sort of the unreal level, you have all the uh, technology and the uh, mechs fighting against each other and the superpowers and the uh, mystery behind Bibby's, uh, platoon and how she powers the mech and how she got her powers and that sort of thing. So it's definitely worth a read. It's part of the massive verse. So if you're reading radiant black rogue sun, radiant red, uh, any of that, you definitely should pick this up because it's, it, it is really, really good. Uh, all right. Up next also from image um, it's ordinary gods. We're up to issue number nine. It's from writer Kyle Higgins and Joe Clark art is by Daniel HDR in this issue frank william on the colors clayton cowell on letters we start to learn more and more about these gods that are trapped on earth imprisoned on earth if you will and how they might be able to free themselves there's a big time jump in this issue that feels like we're heading toward the the end game um but there's as as with everything in ordinary gods there's more than meets the eye so uh, this is another issue that's really paced and plotted within an inch of its life. So again, it makes it very hard for me to 
discuss it in um, in any detail without giving away uh, anything. <laughs> I mean, like I said, there's a big time jump. When there's a big time jump, you, Kyle's not going to do a big time jump for no reason. Um, if he had the space to kind of fill in that time, then he would have, but he doesn't. So that goes to show how fast paced this particular issue is. Um, but just as the, the gods that are trapped on earth think they might have a way out, the scene shifts and we, we go back and we learn that again, things are not what they seem to be. And that might have implications on the way these gods that are trapped on earth, um, free themselves or think they're about to free themselves, but, but maybe they're just playing into the hands of whoever this guy is, who uh, seems to be in charge of their incarceration. So this is a big key issue. um, But I think 10 is going to be even bigger. So uh, ordinary gods, complex story, big story in scope. Um, Can't wait to see what comes next. So uh, if you're Kyle Higgins fan, you should be reading it because it's it's really fantastic. Uh, all right, up next from Top Cow Image Revolvers. This is from writer John Zer Platten. Art is by Christian Dabari, Simon Goh on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, again, not the most original idea, but an interesting one. It focuses on a detective uh, in the Detroit Police Department who has one really, really bad day. Along with his partner, they go to um, exer- execute a search warrant, and things go downhill from there. This warehouse in downtown Detroit, where things, uh, again, are not what they seem, and the detective ends up getting his hand on some revolvers that seem to have magical properties, seem to be possessed, um, or maybe he's possessing them or they're possessing him. Clearly something going on. Um, and, and by the end of the issue, you realize something's going on. So does this detective Hampton is his name. Um, I think Hampton Wales, that's it. Um, he realizes what's going on. You realize that, well, I shouldn't say he realizes what's going on. He realizes there's something going on, what exactly it is. He doesn't know, and neither do we as the readers, but we know it's not good, and and so does he. So um, interesting characterization of Detective Wales. He's not exactly a, a good guy. Um, he's got his imperfections, I'll say, but it does make him feel very real and feel like he's got some inner demons that he's he's battling uh so in that way he is relatable i mean this isn't some you know stand-up guy with impeccable you know deep uh morals and um you know who always makes the right decision you know superhero cop kind of guy no he's a he's a regular guy um that gives into temptation and makes mistakes just like any any of us um but he cares. Uh, he might care too much. And uh, I think that's how the powers that be in this book take advantage of him. Um, and that's explored by, um, that's explored in the story very, very well also. Uh, both by 
the way Wales sees himself and in the way others see him. It's it's mentioned time and again that his as as much as Detective Wales wants to seem like he's jaded and cynical and hardened and doesn't care, he cares a lot and he trusts too easily. And that's uh that's you know his weakness in a lot of ways. So again, that that's explored and shown by uh by Platten very well. Uh, the art by Christian Dabari, it's it's not the cleanest art, uh, but it definitely suits the style style of story. Uh, the colors are it's a bit of a darker palette, but it's a bit of a darker story, so it works on that level very well. Uh, all right, up next we have oh Rogue Sun, Rogue Sun number seven, uh, from writers Ryan Parrott and Nick Cotton. The art is by Z Carlos, Raul. Angulo, I think is how you pronounce it. Maybe it's Angulo is the color artist and Becca Carey does the letters. Um, man, it's hard. It's hard not to say this is the best issue of Rogue Sun yet. It had me smiling when I got done. It was so much fun. Um, I don't, I'll say this. This was the, f- this was the most enjoyable issue of Rogue Sun yet. Maybe not the most impactful because there have been some things, if you haven't read it, there have been some things that were um, revealed about Dylan and Dylan's father and who killed Dylan's father and things about Dylan's mother that were big bombshells in the story and, and really blew me away when I read them. Um, but this is a choose-your-own-adventure issue, whereas you're reading the story Ryan Parrott and Nick Cotton give you choices and say, if you pick this, go to this page. If you pick this, go to this other page. And if you, and there's even a variant cover that's a choose your own adventure style. Like if you, if you read those books back in the day, you'll recognize it. Um, but oh my God, this was so much fun. It was so much fun because it, it is choose your own adventure, but then that gets sort of turned on its head. And I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to st- how long it took me to figure the twist out. Uh, it took me a little bit um, flipping back and forth. So this wasn't just the experience of reading a comic. Like, you know, you pick up the comic, you read page one, read page two, all the way through to page 20 or 40 or whatever. This was a reading experience. This was really interesting and fun. And by the end, I, I just couldn't help but smile. It, it was just, and the art by, uh, Z Carlos is, is strong, uh, just like it's been throughout. We get introduced to a new character here that's interesting called the ornate. Yeah. This was just really, really fun. Um, and, uh, my hats off to, um, to Ryan Parrott for doing it, for doing this. It may annoy some people. Um, but I'm curious to see what others' reaction is going to be, uh, because man, it was just—I keep going back to that word "fun." It was just so much fun. Um, so I do, yeah, I do recommend it. It was—it was a lot of fun. You guys are probably tired of hearing me say that, but that's definitely the best word for it. So, highly recommended. Uh, all right. This week, we have the debut of a new Spider-Man number one with about a thousand covers. No surprise. Dan Slott is returning to the character. We have pencils by the classic Spider-Man artist, Mark Bagley. John Dell is his inker. Edgar Delgado does the colors. Joe Caramagna on letters. 
I have mixed feelings about this issue. On the one hand, I loved it because it's Mark Bagley, classic Spider-Man artist. It's Dan Slott, who's written more issues of Spider-Man than any other man in his, in the history of the character. Uh, so that's a match made in heaven, right? Um, but on the other hand, this is a Spider-Verse story, and we get a lot of other Spider-Man uh, tangential characters here. Um, and that's one of the things that I don't like. Um, because over the years, we've gotten so many different Spider-Man characters, right? Like we've got Peter Parker, Spider-Man, we've got Miles Morales, Spider-Man, we've got Silk, we've got uh, Spider-Gwen, we've got uh, Aranya, uh, we've got the Spider-Man Noir, we've got Spider-Ham, we've got Spider-Punk, um, and I'm sure I'm, I'm various Spider-Women, um, and I'm sure I'm missing, you know, a lot. So we do these Spider-Verse stories, and I think there's an edge of the Spider-Verse um, event going on right now. It, it just it just gets to be too much. And I feel like, as with anything, when you give us so many different iterations of the same character, it makes who Peter Parker is less special, right? Like, there is only one real, true Peter Parker Spider-Man. And again, I don't even like the fact that Miles, as much as I love Miles Morales, and I do, I'm a huge Miles Morales fan. I wish his name wasn't Spider-Man. If he was going to stay in the ultimate universe, then fine. No problem. But now that he's in the same universe, he, I just wish that he was called something else. I don't like when there's two characters with the same name. Right now we have two Spider-Mans. We have two Supermans. We have two Batmans. It, no, I just don't like it. So I know we have Edge of the Spider-Verse going on. Now we have End of the Spider-Verse happening here. Um, could it really truly be the end of the Spider-Verse and we won't have so many of these characters? No, that's not going to happen because Marvel's not going to you know, reduce the number of spider characters they have and, um, and thus in turn reduce their revenue. Um, but it just, I'm not the biggest fan of it. And so having it thrown in my face like this isn't my favorite. Um, that being said, it's technically a very well put together comic it's paced well. The dialogue is there. Dan Slott makes fun of the whole, well, I won't spoil it, but he does make fun of um, uh, something Spider-Man related that is um, kind of specific to him. And again, we get to see a lot of Spider-Man characters, um, both allies and foes. So uh, there's a lot of nostalgia involved there and, and the art by Mark Bagley. I mean, it's Mark Bagley on Spider-Man. The guy lays out Spider-Man stories maybe better than anybody, especially when you're talking about having people swinging through the air on webs and jumping around and big battles and uh, cars, buildings being smashed up and everything. It's it's awesome. Awesome Mark Bagley art. So, yeah. Uh, ultimately, I would recommend it. I'd say, yes, uh, you need to pick this up. It's a heck of a lot of fun probably going to have some consequences uh, to Spider-Man and to Peter Parker for a long time when we're done with this end of Spider-Verse story. Um, you know, that my own personal thing about thinking there's too many Spider-Man related characters that that's on me, but for most people, you're going to pick this up and you're going to love it. Um, it definitely has a classic Spider-Man uh, feel in terms of anybody who's, you know, a younger reader, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, just kind of getting into collecting. They see this come out on the stands. It's, oh, Spider-Man number one. 
I, I'm going to get in on the ground floor and start. I'm going to get to start a series with number one. Not that it's that hard to do these days with all the different number ones, but a Spider-Man number one. Well, we got another one coming in a couple months, probably, but and we just had Amazing that restarted. But anyway, my point still stands. Somebody can pick this up as a first issue, as a first Spider-Man series they collect, and it will always have that place in their uh, kind of reading career, if you will, where they, they're going to look back on this end of Spider-Verse story with great nostalgia, the way some of us look back on um, – Craven's last, Craven's last Hunt, for example, um, and say, hey, th- this was fantastic. Or <laughs> The Clone Saga, to a lesser extent, I suppose. Um, or any of those really classic Spider-Man stories. Um, there could be easily, I could see somebody picking this up and having it have that nostalgia for the, them in 20, 30 years, whatever. So new Spider-Man number one, plenty of covers to choose from. Check it out. Uh, all right. Up next, let's head back over to Image. We have Time Before Time, number 17. This is from writers Rory McConville and Declan Shalvey. Eric Zawadzki. Zawadzki. Pretty sure that's how you say his last name. Z-A-W-A-D-Z-K-I. Apologies if that's incorrect, but I'm pretty sure Zawadzki uh, is the name. Chris O'Halloran does the colors. Hassan Atzman Elhau on letters. It feels like we're getting toward the end of this story. I don't know if that's actually the case, but what I do know is the time travel aspect of the story, as I've mentioned, feels like not the point, which I find to be so interesting in a book called Time Before Time, uh, because it feels like it should be exactly the point. But throughout, this has been a crime noir story that has sort of morphed into a science fiction family tale in a lot of ways. It's become much more human, uh, even as the technology that is being used is is super advanced. And we have talking robots and t- obviously time machines and laser guns and all that. Um, it's more about the characters. This is a character-driven piece. And it's another one of those um, series where I think it's uh, got a lot of readability in terms of going back and rereading it and getting more out of it once you see how it all ends up. Like I even, I feel like even now, if you went back 17 issues in and started over from the beginning, you're going to, it's going to make more sense. You're going to get more out of it. You're going to see hints at where these writers are, are taking us. So we know that um, the main characters, Nadia and Tatsui have, they think they have put some distance between those that are chasing them uh, because they stole a time machine. And it, the story is way too complicated for me to, <laughs> to, um, to recap. Um, but they, they feel relatively safe and they feel like they have a way to finally locate Nadia's family, uh, who she's been searching for all this time. Um, and then when the time actually comes to go there, things aren't as simple as they thought. And, what happens is action packed and could have some pretty big consequences going forward, but we're not sure because that's when the issue ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger and I'm very anxious to see what comes next. So um, this is not an issue that you can just pick up and be dropped into the story, but it is a series I recommend. So go pick up the first couple volumes. If you haven't been reading time before time, um, you're in for a big treat because, uh, again, I think it re- probably reads really well in trade um, as opposed to when the first issues were coming out. It's so fast paced 
so many different characters, so many different timelines um, that it, it, it was kind of tough to keep track in the beginning, but it is definitely paying off uh, because now that it's all been established again, that human aspect of the story, the, the relationships, the emotionality, they're all starting to land um, in, in big, big swings. So, all right, last book I'm going to talk about in detail, Undiscovered Country, written by Scott Snyder and Charles Soule. Art is by Giuseppe Comencoli and Leonardo Marcello Grassi, colored by Matt Wilson, lettered by Crank. I could echo a lot of what I said about time before time with uh, this issue 21 of Undiscovered Country. We're starting to get some clues that we're heading to the end game here, um, that America isn't you know, all that it seemed to be, even as the expedition that's gone inside the, uh, the walls of America and tra- are traveling this spiral, this pathway to, to the center. Um, we're getting some hints about what comes after, after they left. And it's, it's very interesting. The, the members of the expedition have all kind of been split up at this point. Some are trying to get the group back together. Others are, are kind of being forced through no fault of their own to kind of run for their lives and meet up with other members that they didn't expect to see again. So there's a lot going on and it feels like we're building to something really, really big. And just when you think you might have a handle on it, the last couple of pages totally pull the rug out from under you and you're left wondering, wait, what's going on? So again, big book, complicated story from, Snyder and soul as it has been throughout another one of those books where there's twists and turns constantly, a lot of rereadability. what's going to happen. So many hints of what's to come. Um, and so many seeds that were planted in the beginning and Snyder and soul have done a fantastic job of planting those seeds and, this has been a very consistent series, which is so interesting because it was so prescient in a lot of ways, um, being that it started before the pandemic and then the whole idea of closed borders and whatnot with coronavirus and everything. So um, Giuseppe Camoncoli art is fantastic. It's always super dynamic, tons of action in this issue, uh, some big plot twists. And uh, I'm not sure if they know how long this is going. Um, 24, 27 issues feels about right. Uh, but they could definitely extend it. I think it's totally up to them. It could go longer than that, but it feels like we're getting some answers, uh, or the group, the characters are getting some answers and starting to, to figure things out. So we'll see how that all plays out. If that's actually true. Or if we're just going to get another big plot twist, which I'm all for, um, because that book has had some fantastic plot twists um, throughout its run. So uh, well, those are the books I've had a chance to uh, check out already. Let me do a quick rundown of some other titles you might want to be on the lookout for. From Aftershock today, we have Side Effects Graphic Novel. Uh, it's the only Aftershock book out this week uh, over at Boom. We've got Basilisk number 12 from Cullen Bunn over at... Dark Horse, Minor Threats, number two of four. That's the Jordan Bloom and Patton Oswalt written book where the first issue totally blew me away. Can't wait for issue number two. Night of the Ghoul, number one of three. That's from Scott Snyder and Francesco Francavilla. Just got optioned recently, if you didn't hear. So 
uh, could see it on the big screen or the small screen. So if you're curious, check that out. Uh, we did our re review that on our best jacket spotlights, uh, Rocky from Comic Boom and I. So check that out if you're so inclined uh, over at DC. And again, you can hear about all these books in detail on our DC spotlight yesterday. We have Batman number 128, Batman Nightwatch number two, Black Adam, the Justice Society Files, Dr. Fate number one, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths number five of seven, Dark Crisis, the Deadly Green number one. Gotham City, Year One, number one. Joker, The Man Who Stopped Laughing, number one, from writer Matthew Rosenberg. Monkey Prince, number seven of 12, brings uh, Monkey Prince back after a short hiatus for its second arc. Writer Jean Luen Yang, artist Bernard Chang. Multiversity, Teen Justice, number five of six. Poison Ivy, number five of six. Sword of Azrael, number three of six. And that's it. That's it from DC. Uh, over at IDW, Earth Divers number one, which is uh, a really interesting story about trying to change um, history, going back and stopping Columbus from discovering America. I used that word discovering in quotes. Um, so that I thought that was interesting. I'm very much looking forward to reading that, um, which I, I had the press preview and I just totally forgot about it. Um, forgot to read it in time to talk to you guys about it. So, but I will have read it before I talk to you next, and I'll I'll be sure to mention my thoughts. Uh, over at Image, in addition to the books that we talked about, we have the Image 30th Anniversary Anthology, number six of twelve. We also have Kaya issue number one, King Spawn issue number fifteen, uh, Walking Dead issue number Walking Dead Deluxe, I should say. Issue number 48. Uh, over at Marvel, in addition to the books that I talked about, we've got Edge of the Spider-Verse, number five of five. We've got uh, Marauders, number seven. There's a Miracle Man, number zero, one shot that has a bunch of different Miracle Man stories in it as Marvel prepares to both reprint the classic Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman um, Miracle Man stuff and also... Uh, Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham are bringing back Miracle Man with all new stories to finish off their Silver Age, I think is what it was called, Silver Age story arc, at least finish that off, um, which was, I guess, the story they were telling when they got canceled. So if you're curious about Miracle Man, I'm hoping to, to do a Miracle Man spotlight and explain a lot more about the character coming up sometime in the next month or so. Uh, but you can check out Miracle Man Zero, which... Again, there's a bunch of creators on it, a bunch of stories. It's an anthology. It'll give you somewhat of an idea of who Miracle Man is. We also have the final issue of New Fantastic Four. Number five of five, Savage Avengers is up to issue number six. And uh, we have Star Wars The Mandalorian, number four. And X-Men Red, number seven. Uh, I'll also mention, let's see, from Titan... We've got Gun Honey, Blood for Blood, number two. There's a second printing for number one. That seemed to be a very popular book. I, I don't know if it's because of the covers. I I bought the first issue, and I never even read it. I only bought it because it was an Adam Hughes cover, um, but it seems to be a pretty popular um, book. Like whenever my LCS does their live streams um, on new comics, for new comics Wednesday on Tuesday nights, 
Uh, but I don't know if it's just because the covers are so provocative or if it's actually a good story. But anyway, I thought I'd mention it. So that's going to do it for this episode. Appreciate everybody joining. As always, again, if you're heading out to New York Comic Con, have a good time, be safe, and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.